These Old Testament narratives really take the form of declarations about God coming directly from God. Now is not the time to prove the truth of the inspiration of Scripture, but we believe and affirm again these are the inspired words of an infallible, inerrant God. They come as truth. They come purposefully, intentionally, that we would see God as He is revealed in the Word. The God who reveals Himself in these pages. And as such, we should primarily look at these accounts in such a way that we would learn more about God from them. What is God like? Who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? But when we look at these portions in such a way, at times we must confess they make uncomfortable reading. We struggle to see how these narratives fit with a God of mercy and compassion. The trouble is, our view of God is often conditioned by how we would like God to be. But our view of God must be regulated by the Word of God itself and and not by our preferences or by our notions. You see, in this chapter, we're coming again to see familiar, similar themes to that we noted last week. In many ways, I could have just copied and pasted the outline from last week. The same things are revealed in a very, very similar manner. Elijah's ministry continues post Ahab. Verse 1, Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Ahab's gone, but Elijah has not. Elijah's work and ministry continues in the successor to Ahab, namely the son of Ahab, Ahaziah. These books would have been read together. We have them divided up. Of course, in our Bibles, this is now often thought of as the fourth book of the kings. First and Samuel, first and second Kings, but these four books of the kings in Hebrew literature, they came together. And thus, we should see a continuity between the end of first Kings and the beginning of second Kings. And rather than bemoaning the repetition, we should see that this is how God would instruct us. We should not complain about God's ways. I say I should not complain about God's ways. As a preacher, you you want variety. It keeps people interested. It it keeps them engaged. If the sermons are so similar week by week, again, people get to the point, they go, here we go again. If I'm wrong, please forgive me. But that's my heart. And I I come to these passages and I think, well... uh, how do I make this fresh? How do I come to the same truths in ways that are, that are going to engage the people and the listeners? I want to do that. But we should be submissive again to God's Word. God has brought these accounts to us back by back. The last three chapters of 1 Kings, the first chapter of 2 Kings, they continue the same theme of God bringing judgment to those who will not heed His Word. Those who turn their backs against the word of God, God does indeed come in judgment, ultimately pointing us forward to Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isaiah is a tragic figure. Tragic. You think of the lessons he must have seen as a young man being raised under his father Ahab. All that he'd been aware of all that he would have seen 
And yet chapter 22 of 1 Kings ends, Isaiah the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel, verse 52, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and that's not enough, and walked in the way of his father, and even that's not enough, and in the way of his mother, and even that's not enough, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. It's like a catalogue of evidence. And yet the tragedy of a fallen heart is they will stubbornly continue in the way of rebellion. And so verse 53, For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. Isaiah did not learn from the life of his father, did not learn from the interventions of God, no rain, rain, fire, all of these things, and yet he would not learn the lessons. Who's going to be like Isaiah today? Who's going to choose that pathway? You're here in the house of God, under the word of God. You've heard the warnings of God's judgment. The coming of Christ is going to come and judge this world. You've heard these things. And yet, are you going to stay in the pathway of Isaiah? We've got to learn these lessons. I'd like to remind you again that these narratives, they prepare the way for us to receive the message of the cross of Christ. And the cross, the place where this God, the God of Elijah, out of a love for sinners, pours his wrath upon his son, that we might know redemption. This is your God today, dear child of God. This is your God today, dear sinner, whether you choose to accept it or not. This is the one God, the only true and living God. And first of all, this God is a God who is intolerant of idolatry. That's the first and primary theme in this passage. Again, remember how 1 Kings ends. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. See the connection there. This is, this is meant to be read in a consecutive fashion. You're seeing a direct correlation between the end of 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings. Because note first of all in this section, note the injury. The injury that Ahaziah sustains. Because when you read this, it jars as a reader. Moab rebelled against Israel, and Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber. Be honest. It's meant to kind of catch your attention in such a way you go, how, how are A and B related here? What's actually going on? Well, of course, you will know that Moab is a significant figure in the Bible's history. And in the reign of David, Moab is placed under David's rule. Their rebellion, verse number one, is a sign and a marker in God's providence that all is not well with the people of God. The rising of Moab is God saying to his people, pay attention. Watch out. Your idolatry and your iniquity is not missed by my sight. Yet we find Isaiah doing nothing. That's the point. 
The point of this passage is when we read the account of Isaiah, we find him not repenting spiritually and doing nothing militarily. He is simply inactive. He just is in his bedroom at ease. And he's lying against a lattice and he falls down through that lattice and he is injured in some way. The word is he is sick. The implication of this place, the upper chamber, it carries in the cultural context there the thought of giving himself to pleasure, ease, and self-indulgence. He's being waited on hand and foot. He's simply lying back there, giving no thought to God and no thought to the people. He's a waste of space. It's essentially what Isaiah is at this important time in the history of God's people. What a tragedy. What an absolute tragedy to have such a leader. A ruler who has no perception of the hand of God. A leader who does not see the handwriting upon the wall. Draw your own parallels, folks. But we have, in generations gone by, rulers, and I say plural rulers, who do not perceive the hand of God. We are living in days when the hand of God is manifestly revealed. Romans 1 is so very, very clear that when God withdraws from people, he gives them over to all manner of sexual lust and immorality. And our rulers cannot see the hand of God. And they will not perceive these things. And the tragedy is there are spiritual rulers in the churches who are embracing these things and they also are not seeing the hand of God. And so we find ourselves both with rulers and with religious leaders and they will not call sin, sin. They will not name these things as they are and say God's wrath is revealed toward us. Tragedy. We have again people who are essentially waste of space because they will not lead us in the paths of righteousness for God's sake. I carry that to churches and to religious leaders. The injury here. The inquiry is also here. Now, young people, you grammarians, I know what I've done here. It's always this debate. Inquiry or inquiry, E beginning or I beginning. It should be E, but I have four eyes here, okay, folks? I'm giving myself to alliteration, not to grammar. An inquiry involves something formal. This is more an inquiry than an inquiry. So young people, please do not deal with me outside there in the lobby, okay? I know already. But it is an inquiry, isn't it? Because the text says that. What happens next? Well, Isaiah's in trouble, and what's he do? He does the wrong thing. He says, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. It's the only thing Isaiah does in this passage. He gives instructions to these servants whether it be this one or those captains of 50s, he sits there, he's now injured, and he's bossing people around and pointing them in the wrong direction for the wrong actions. And he says to them, go to Beelzebub. Now, again, this is consistent behavior. He is clearly a worshiper of Baal, verse 53 of the previous chapter. And I mentioned before that Baal is a generic name. There is, within Baalism, many, many false gods, and they are regional gods. This name, Beelzebub, refers to the Lord of the Flies. 
but there seems to be an occultic element in this God. It's the God of Ekron, but when you see it being drawn through Scripture and you get to the Gospel age, the Pharisees accuse the Lord of casting out spirits and devils by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And so it may well be the case here in Beelzebub, there's an occultic, satanic aspect to this particular false god. And as such, Isaiah is clearly stepping outside the will of God. You think of the words of Leviticus chapter 20 and the verse number 6 says this, And the soul that turneth after such as have familiar spirits and after wizards to go whoring after them, I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. That's what God is doing with Isaiah. In those simple words at the end of the chapter, And he died. Not only according to the word of God prophetically through Elijah, but according to the word of God in revealed will. You go after familiar spirits and false gods, and you seek counsel from them, I will cut you off from all my people. So happening here to Isaiah. He's consulting devils. His wickedness before him. And again, you think of him following the ways of his father. He has not even given thought to the end of Saul, who, of course, having consulted with familiar spirits, it says in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, to inquire of it and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore, he slew him. This inquiry is going to bring down the judgment of God, which leads thirdly to the instruction that comes from Elijah. Verse Three, in very familiar language now, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up. We've seen that several times now. It's, it's like God's trumpet call in Elijah's ear. Here we go. Arise, you're on your way again, Elijah. I've got a job for you to do. And that job is again bringing words of judgment. Now the question is really the question that hits the nail upon the head. Is it because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. There are two ways to see this. You could see it this way, that God has removed himself from Israel, and therefore he will not be consulted by Isaiah. But I think more than likely the case is this. It is because Isaiah does not believe in the God of Israel that he's chosen to go after this false god. And so the question is, is this your reason, Isaiah? Because you don't believe there's a God in Israel, that therefore you must now consult this God, Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. And so a sentence is then issued. You shall not come down from that bed in which they are gone up, but shalt surely die. Which leads fourthly to the intrigue. Again, that's in the king, the messengers, turn back, verse 5, and he says unto them, why are ye now turned back? Here's the, here's the intrigue. The messengers return. And the question is, why, why are you so quick? This should have taken longer than it did. You've turned back so quickly. Oh, we met a man. You met a man? But you were, you were on a job. You, were, you had a task to do. How could meeting a man have such an impact upon you? What, the, what man? And what did he say? Now, God's message has struck home. The men did return, and they say to the king, you have turned from the Lord and you will die. What's the lesson of this section? 
Well, it is the title of the section, God is Intolerant of Idolatry. We've seen that time and time again, but in Isaiah's case, we are seeing more. We're seeing in his example, particularly the fact that idolatry arises out of unbelief. He served Balaam, verse 53. He consults of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, verse number 2. And we're seeing here that his idolatry comes in the context of unbelief. The question is, is there not a God in Israel? In other words, in your heart and in your mind, Isaiah, is there no God? You're guilty of profound unbelief, and unbelief has led you to idolatry. And that's always the case. Unbelief will always lead to idolatry of some form. So you turn across, please, to 1 John. Here I want to drive home a New Testament practical application of this particular truth. Because we would we'd be amiss not to observe the fact that the children of God, the believer, can at times struggle with the sin of idolatry. We're not immune to first table commandment sins. We think we might tell lies, guilty of coveting, Disrespect the parents. When it comes to the first table, no, we, we worship God. No, no, dear child of God, you are not immune to idolatry. And the human heart, as Calvin said, is, is a factory of idols. We'll always make new idols in our day. And so John ends his first letter and says to the church, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5 21. What an ending! What an ending to a book all about assurance and knowing they're standing before God. And yet he warns those, he's encouraging them to know that they are the children of God. And yet he warns these very, very people, keep yourselves from idols. Or struggles with idolatry will always increase in proportion to our unbelief. Verse 20 of 1 John 5, and we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. The application of this to your soul today is to get before God and cry unto Him for the work of the Spirit of God in applying the Word of God, that you be strong in faith, that you would know the truth and rest upon the truth and delight in the truth, that you would know Christ Jesus and knowing Him, you'd be free from idolatry. Idolatry comes with unbelief. And when the child of God begins to slip back into unbelief, idolatry comes upon its heels. It's always the way. There's a direct correlation. When the child of God finds himself dabbling in the idols of this world, we may not have Beelzebub, and we may not have all the Beel gods of that day, but we have our own modern-day Beels. You know them, you look around them. The gods of fame and fortune and money and sport and popularity and all these things. We have no shortage of gods in our own day. And you'll have your own favorites. And at times, you'll find yourself conflicted. 
If you're honest, you'll realize that God is not first in your life. And when God is not first in your life, then something else is. And something else is first in your life when you do not trust in Christ the way you ought. You see, when we see Christ for who he is in verse 20, then we will see that every false God is just that. When we are convinced of the unseen truth, then the seen vanities are easily confronted. We cannot see Christ, but we know him to be true. We love him who is true. And when we trust in the unseen reality of Christ Jesus, then the things that we see are seen to be what they are, vanities. All that glitters is not gold. This world glitters with so much to appeal to the young person and the not so young. But Christ, he is all in all to the child of God. And so the way to avoid the sin of Ahaziah is to be in the word of God. To be diligent in the scriptures of truth. Day by day in your homes, opening up the Bible and saying, where is Christ in the word And then Lord's Day by Lord's Day, not absenting yourself from the house of God, but coming with a desire, show me Jesus, show me the Lord, that I be strong in faith, and I can then put to death the idols of my own soul. Idolatry comes, arises out of unbelief. We also see in this passage, we see how entrenched idolatry can be. As I is crazy foolishness to persist in idolatry, despite the end of his father and despite Moab's rebellion and despite being at death's door, all of these reasons would surely encourage him to seek the true God, but rather he persists in his unbelief. I say so often, I remind you again, the sinner's heart is so hard that only the mighty power of the Spirit of God can change it. Remember that when you're praying. You wonder, surely this circumstance or that circumstance will bring my friend or my love unto Christ. Surely this will do it. If nothing else is going to do it, this is going to do it. Providences can indeed be used of God to open our eyes, but only Christ and the Spirit of God can open our hearts. Pray to that end. Third lesson in this matter is that idolatry manifests itself in prayerlessness. What's the evidence of Isaiah's idolatry? It is the fact that he seeks not God, but the God of Ekron. It is so like the sin of Saul. Again, we saw in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, it says there, he inquired not of the Lord. Again, the question of Elijah, the same form. There is no God, therefore you must go somewhere else. And so idolatry comes in not knowing the matter of true prayer. We are, according to Psalm 62, to trust in the Lord at all times and pour out our hearts before him. If we handle life resting on people or things without inquiring to God, we're guilty of idolatry. If you handle your tomorrow resting upon your own resources, your own skills, your own experience, and do not depend upon God, You've made an idol of yourself. But I've I've done this education. I have all this background. 
had this experience. I've done this job for the last 40 years. I can do all these things with my eyes closed. Ah, you see, that's the problem. You've embraced the lie that through experience and learning, you can do whatever you want and you forget that it's only by God's hand we can do anything. The grace of God in our lives is absolutely essential just to live this life. And a prayerless spirit is an idolatrous spirit. And so, as we end this section, I want to remind you, remember the commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Little children, guard yourself, keep yourself, flee from idolatry. My attention was brought back to, to this confession of faith. This is the Scots Confession of Faith of 1560. I actually, I bought this copy a long time, maybe almost 30 years ago, in John Knox's house in the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. That's just a story for the interest. But it says this, chapter 1 on God. This is a, this is a confession in the, in the spirit of John Knox. We confess and acknowledge one God alone. To him alone we must cleave. Him alone we must serve whom only we must worship, and in whom alone we put our trust. It's the repetition of only and alone that strikes the child of God in that passage. There are many, true in Knox's day and true in our day, who would have God plus everything else. If we are going to be the children of God, it must be in God alone. God is intolerant of idolatry. He is zealous and values the glory of his own name. But secondly, please note God's protection of his reputation. You see, if we're to read this passage and understand this passage, we must grasp it in light of the issue that's at stake. It is the issue of God's honor and the glory of his name. And in the word of God, that is a constant issue. And God acts always for the honor of his name. When the people of God, they they come before the Red Sea and they're confronted with doubts and grumblings. It says, nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake. And here God is acting for his name's sake. The king has inquired of a God who is no God. And in such a manner, he's leading the people to suggest that there is no God in Israel. And thus God must step in for the honor and glory of his name. And we can pray that same prayer. For the honor and glory of your name, step in an day. Make yourself known when people say, the heathen say, where is your God? Lord, we pray, show yourself to be strong in our day. What does he do? Well, note first of all, the response of the king to the word of God. The word of God comes to him, verse number six, thou shalt surely die. And what is the response of the king? What manner of man? His attention is immediately focused upon the man and not on the message. And so what he attempts to do, he attempts to silence the man. A captain and his 50 go to Elijah sent by the king. And the man of God, or the the captain says to the man of God, verse number 9, come down. That is not a desire to hear the message repeated again. It is a desire to silence the messenger that the message will not be heard again. You see, as the king responds, 
He comes as one who questions the man's authority, Elijah's authority. Note verse number 9. The king says, Thou man of God, the king hath said, Come down. Yes, the captain is using these words in verse number 9, but the words that come are coming from the king. And implied in these words, Thou man of God, is a disparaging of the man of God's authority. It's not simply using the title. Oh, you're a man of God. You should come down. And why do I say that? Because of Elijah's response. If I be a man of God. In other words, they doubt that I am a man of God. They're coming and they're sneering at me. They're, just, they're, they're doubting my authority. The king does not believe I'm a man of God. Therefore, God, show yourself strong on my behalf. The doubt is there in the words of the king through the captain, thy man of God. What a parallel this is when the sinner is confronted with the wrath of God. They sneer at the messenger. Oh, what poor speech. What an unlearned individual that man is. To, to bring the word of God but with no education and, and, no, and no academic ability. Stumbling and mumbling in their words. Oh, the, the, what, what sort of man is this? And they come and their desire then, having disparaged the man of God, they then continue to try to silence the message. Partly, some, well, they begin and they, they sleep through a service. Not here, you guys are great. But they, they come. And they determine their minds, I'm not going to listen to that message. Or they begin to deliberately distract themselves. And somewhere they're going, to, they're going to keep the word of God out of their minds. They're going to silence the messenger. And then they get to the point where they don't come to church anymore. Because they do not want to hear the repeated warnings of God's word for their sin. And their absence from the house of God is their determination to close their minds from the truth of God. They're no different than this king. Silencing the message. The in the messenger. The sinner's response to the word of God. The warning that comes to such an individual is then the response of God to the word of the king. Verses 9 through 15, the Lord God comes and proves himself. He sends fire. Verse 10, if I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty and there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Fire comes from heaven. Sent to prove that Jehovah was God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Remember that refrain? As fire came down from heaven on Mount Carmel, the people came to acknowledge the Lord, he is God. But here there is a profound difference. On Mount Carmel, the fire falls upon the sacrifice and not upon the people. Here now the fire falls upon the sinner. And they are consumed under the wrath of God. Now some people trouble here. They, they question this. They, they wonder in their own minds. Surely these soldiers are just innocent. All they're doing is bidding their, doing the bidding of their evil master. Well, let's just note a few things. Who sends the fire? Elijah has no power to send this fire. He asks for it, but God sends it. So if you're accusing anybody of injustice or a bitter spirit, you're accusing God of an unjust and a bitter spirit. 
God has the power to say no to Elijah. Christ said no to similar requests from the sons of thunder in his day. But at this point, God sends the fire. It's also worth noting that the point of this is that Ahaz would remember Carmel. It's a defense of God's glory, and the soldiers were not innocent. The first group, they come aggressively and with a mocking spirit, thy man of God, come down. The second group don't learn, and they even add the word quickly in verse number 11, come down quickly. These are people who are fully compliant with the will of their king, so much so that when you see the third group, their language changes. And when you get to the third group, look at the end of verse number 13. O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty... You know what it says? Note the words very carefully. Thy servants. The first groups were very, very much Isaiah's servants. But the third group, learning the lesson they come, were thy servants. And God proves himself in these first two groups as fire is sent from heaven. In so doing, as God proves himself, he protects his servant. Elijah will not die. His work is not yet done. Of course, Elijah will never die. He will not die at the hands of these individuals. But please don't miss the third group. People accuse God of injustice and being unmerciful when they see the language of the first two groups and fire sent down to consume them, but they do not see God relenting in the third group. As they come with a humble spirit before God, we see a God who resists the pride but gives grace unto the humble. You come to God with the spirit of these first two groups, then expect the fire of God of wrath to come down upon your head. But if you come in humble submission to God's prophet, Christ Jesus, there's mercy with the Lord. Mercy with the Lord. Thirdly, and very briefly, note that God executes his judgment. He carries out his warnings. Verse 15 and following, the angel says to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. And he went down, sorry, he rose and went down with him unto the king. Elijah goes and does not engage in any dialogue. He repeats the message verbatim again to this king. By God's grace, Elijah continues to be bold in his task. And judgment falls upon the one who's stubborn in his resistance. Isaiah has not learned from his father's end. He has not learned from God's revelation of the fire coming from heaven. And he has not learned that God is true. The words of Ezekiel chapter 22 come to mind. I, the Lord, have spoken it and will do it. People ask you to behold your God, please, today. Woe unto him that striveth against his maker, Isaiah 55, verse 9. Our God is a consuming fire. Those words in Hebrews 12 are written to the people of God. Because God is a consuming fire, we are therefore told to serve, to worship God, except with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. God alone. God only. First place in our hearts. First priority in all of our actions. 
no idolatry, but Christ alone. Hebrews 12 is not an old covenant text. It applies the language of the old covenant to the new covenant. We must not play fast and loose with our God. We must not play fast and loose with our sin. We must not presume that we can sin carelessly and God will not notice. We must not allow sin to abound, that grace might abound. Rather, because grace abounds, we are those who delight in serving our God who is a consuming fire. The character of God is displayed in this scene. This scene actually sets and prepares our minds for Calvary. Because on Calvary, God's wrath comes down upon His Son and the fire falls like Carmel upon the sacrifice and not upon the people. Remember the words of my favorite hymn growing up when I was first converted in our hymn book called Christian Hymns, a Welsh hymn book. And there's a great Welsh Baptist pastor written this hymn, Great is the Gospel of our Glorious God, where mercy met the anger of God's rod. A penalty was paid and pardon bought and sinners lost at last to him were brought. Mercy met the anger of God's rod. The fire of God fell upon the sun on Calvary that all who trust in him will never feel the heat of God's fire upon them. But for those outside of Christ, the fire will indeed fall again as Christ comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those who know not God and obey not the gospel. Nothing new, nothing novel, but a passage that searches our hearts again. We've heard the word of God so, so many times. But have we really understood what it's saying? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. May God point our hearts to Christ Jesus. Let's pray together, please. Seeking the Lord again for his grace and the proper understanding and application of the word of God. Eternal God and Father, we do come before Thee humbly again. Thank You, Lord, for the, even these solemn portions of Your Word. So often, O oh Lord, our delight would be to consider the glories of the grace of God revealed in the gospel of Christ. And You've taken our minds there, O oh Lord, but, but via the pathway of judgment, Thou art the judge of all the earth, and You always do what is right. We submit to Thee. Help us to live in reverence and godly fear. That our God be delight to know your will and do your will. Not under righteousness, but as those who are righteous in Christ Jesus. Bless tonight's service. We pray, Lord, for a balance between this morning and this evening. That we who value the necessity of a proper view of sanctification would delight in the proper view of justification. That we rejoice that whoever believes and calls upon the Lord shall indeed be saved. Oh God, we pray, bless this day to your hearts. Help us throughout the day to hallow and to honor your day as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.